Promised, a podcast about the hope and good news of Jesus, always including God's promises to encourage you along the way and show you how much God really loves you. Welcome to Promised with Zach Cole. We're glad you're here. Have you ever seen or are familiar with the Disney movie Aladdin? If you're not familiar with the Disney movie Aladdin, even just have a healthy sense of maybe the old story of Aladdin, Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves, uh, these old tales. If you're familiar with them, you'll be able to track a little bit where I'm going this week on the second Sunday in Advent that's coming up. The reading for this week is Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. And I bring up the story of Aladdin because there's a scene in the movie Aladdin that reminds me of a little bit of what is going on here in this passage in Luke. This Luke passage, passage in Luke is where John the Baptist is preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. In the movie Aladdin, there's a scene in the movie where the genie is playing the role of a servant who is making the way for Aladdin, who's in disguise, dressed up as Prince Ali Ababwa. And if you're familiar with the cartoon version or even the most recent live version of the movie Aladdin, this character of the genie, he's going through the town of Agrabah and he's clearing the way for the prince, for Prince Ali. He's leading the way and behind him is a parade of exotic animals and gifts from Prince Ali to Princess Jasmine. And so the genie is going through the crowds and saying, hey, get out of the way, wake up, pay attention, take, here is come, here comes the prince. The prince is on his way. So the genie in this role is making the way straight. He's clearing the path. He's clearing the road so that everybody can be waiting in anticipation for the coming of Prince Ali. So keep that in mind, and that'll tie into today's episode. And we'll go ahead and let's go ahead and read chapter 3 in the Gospel of Luke, verse 1 through 20. And when I'm reading it, I may stop while I'm reading it to discuss different parts of it. Uh, So bear with me. We'll try that this week and see how it works. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, I I think James Tiberius Kirk, you know, the captain of the USS Enterprise for all my Star Trek fans out there. I digress. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, I've heard that name before, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, time out right here. You might be asking yourself, or thinking to yourself, what's with all the names? What does that have to do with any 
with, with this story. I thought this was a story about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And here's the big takeaway from this particular point in this passage and through all throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament. These names that are being given here are real people, real historical people that lived and had vocations of Tetrarch, of Caesar, of all these other different titles of their vocation because they were actual real people. And Luke is writing this account here to give dates and times of when these events are happening because they actually happened in real time. And he's dropping names of very important leaders in this time frame so that the reader back then, and even for us today, could read it and go, oh, okay, so this was during this administration. This would be like if we were to like say, if if all of these events happened now, it would be like Luke writing, in the 15th year of the reign of, or in the third year of the reign of this president and this vice president or this king or this leader right now. He's setting the stage for when this events have happened. And this is a big deal because the Christian faith is wrapped up and married with real people in real space and time of real historical events that actually happened. Our faith is different from so many other faiths that are based upon an ideology or a philosophy where it's a thinking or a way of thinking, and it can be true whether or not real events actually happened. Our faith is based on the real person of Jesus Christ, who was also 100% God, died an actual death on an actual Roman cross in actual time and space in our history. And this death and this resurrection of him three days later from the dead and ascending into heaven are actual recorded events in our Bible, in our scripture, in the gospels of the Bible. And his death The crucifixion of Christ is one of the most well-documented historical events in antiquity. There is no other, as far to my knowledge, and please out there correct me if I'm wrong, there is no other ancient historical event that has happened that is as this documented as the crucifixion of Christ, that is this targeted to try to be discounted as the crucifixion of Christ. And people can't do it because of the number of transcripts of the Gospels, of the number of other secondhand accounts that confirming that these were actual people in real time and space that happened. It is, you're, you're really having to, even secular historians will admit that there is enough documented evidence that they have to agree with that there was a person named Jesus Christ who was crucified on a Roman cross during this time frame. They will even admit that. The documentation for Mark and Matthew and Luke and John alone is blows away the closest things into comparison of any events that happened during that time or earlier. And these things are written in the lifetime of people who lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, 
being Tetrarch of Galilee and so forth, so that they have witnesses that are alive during this time frame who witness these events. So you could read this account and say, oh, I'm going to go check out this primary source name and ask him if this is true. So God was so on purpose with his plan of salvation that he made it and initiated it during a time where documentation was a thing, that we have accounts and records for it. This is huge. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of going off this rabbit trail to help encourage you out there who may be going to school or have friends that maybe try to convince you or put doubts in your heart about the truth claims of the Christian faith. And I'm here to tell you that the Christian faith has plenty of good reasons and evidence for believing in its truth claims, and they're out there. And it there's through a, a field of theology called apologetics, which means to give a defense of the Christian faith, to provide reasonable readings for reasonable reasons for the truth claims of Christianity. And they're out there. And there are some that will go off the I won't say the deep end, but will go off on a different tangent of proving the existence of God, which is great. Proving the truth claims of other events in scripture, which is fine. But I like to follow the pattern of John Mark Montgomery. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and others in their apologetics who say, go, if you're going to give a defense of the Christian faith, go for the jugular, meaning go for providing evidence for the key event that will cause our faith to be undone or to preserve it as it is. And that's the crucifixion. There's a, I had a professor in college in seminary, his name was Dr. Gary Habermas. And he had this way of explaining the apologetic of the resurrection. And I believe it's the, he called it the minimal facts approach that provide the truth claims of the resurrection. And they're fascinating. If I find a link to it, I'll probably put in the show notes. And I'll put uh, some links to um, some apologetic sources of Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and John Wark Montgomery as, as well. And I'm kind of on an apologetics uh train here right now, and I'm, I can't say that without pointing out uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic, easy to read uh, apologetics discourse on the Christian faith. It's uh, it's good. So back, let's get back to our text. So I think we left off in verse 3. And he went, that's John the Baptist, into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's a promise. That's a promise that was quoted from the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to speak on that later after we finish the verses. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
So what's uh, John the Baptist saying here? He's saying, hey, you religious leaders here who came to hear me speak, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? He's kind of calling them out. He's saying, I know you're here. You're trying to see, you know, crazy John in the wilderness with his camel hair and locusts and honey eaten ways. You're trying to catch me or you're trying to frame me for some sort of violation of one of their rules. And so he's warning them, hey, who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Saying, and he even exhorted them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That means to change your mind, to turn back to God. And he's even saying, do not begin to say we have Abraham as our father. Meaning, hey, we're good. We're, We're in the club. We're in the eternal life club because our father is Abraham. They were basing their salvation off of a right of heredity, of a right of ancestry. We're the sons of Abraham, so therefore we have eternal life. That's what they're basing their hope in. And John the Baptist's response is, God is able for these stones from God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And this is a kind of a well known fact back then, is that the religious rulers and Pharisees of the time and the Israelites in general viewed Gentiles, non-Jews, as so worthless that they oftentimes referred to them as stones. A more modern phrase, now they, you might have heard the phrase, uh, that dude is as dumb as a box of rocks or something like that. And that's how they viewed Gentiles. They were worthless, like rocks. And so when John the Baptist is saying this, even, you know, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He was he might have been referring to Gentiles. And that is kind of a foreshadowing of some promises that we know that are coming down the way from Christ. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Oh man, that's a tempting thing for anyone. Crowds of people asking if you're the Messiah. (laughs) There's probably some people around the world right now that are preaching in the name of Christ who would be more than happy to have people refer to them as the Messiah or a hero or a savior of theirs. They'll eat that kind of adulation up. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Okay, that's low. That That's like servant low. The sandals and feet of people back then were very unclean and dirty things. That was slave work to untie the sandals of anyone. And here's John saying that he's unworthy to even be the slave of Christ. He's unworthy to even touch his feet. And then John says, 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Whew, that's some harsh language. So saying, hey, he's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff. If you're wheat, he'll keep you. If you're chaff, he'll burn you up. He'll baptize you with fire. That doesn't sound really good. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news. So far, that all sounds like bad news. Maybe the good news was the repentance. And as we read earlier in the verse, that he was baptizing people for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. But John also points out earlier that he baptizes with water, that the one that comes after him will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So then we'd have a true baptism, water plus God's word, baptized in the triune name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how he, Jesus, the one who comes after John, would baptize with the Holy Spirit, a, a, a true baptism. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Her- Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Man, that's kind of heavy too. Here's the forerunner. Here's the person who is paving the way for Jesus. There's even one passage, I don't know if it's in the Gospel of Luke, but I know in one of the Gospels, Jesus says that there is not a greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. I mean, that's a pretty... Obviously, Jesus feels very fondly about his cousin. Oh, yes. Uh, John the Baptist was Jesus' true cousin. Mary and Elizabeth were sisters. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. And yet, even after all that, John the Baptist still ends up in prison for calling Herod to repent over his sin with Herodias and then later loses his head for it. You might be sitting there thinking, but wait a minute. I thought, John the Baptist was one of the greatest people who ever lived. Why? Do, how could God let such an awesome person like John the Baptist get captured in prison and beheaded? I thought he was supposed to have his best life now. That doesn't sound like his best life now. And here's why. This is a good reminder for us all. Jesus never promised us that we would have a wonderful, amazing life in our standards. He did promise us that the world would hate us. And he did promise us that there would be trials and tribulations for us. The world will hate us because it hates Christ. So don't let your faith be rocked if you find yourself being persecuted for your faith. Rejoice. Out of all that what Christ has done for us, and all the suffering that he went through for us, to be counted worthy to share in his suffering, to be able to be counted worthy to, to suffer for his name's sake, that doesn't mean that God's left you. No. That doesn't mean the world hates you, like Christ said it would. Just because Jesus didn't promise that you wouldn't be put in jail or beheaded because of your faith, he did promise that no one can ever separate you from your spiritual head, which is Christ. Christ is the head of his church. 
And when the world tries to physically separate ourselves from this body, Christ has promised that one day he will raise this body that's in the ground to an indestructible, indestructible, glorified body forever. Oh yeah, that's another thing too. Jesus physically died on a Roman cross to save us from eternal damnation, to save us from the grave, not just to resurrect himself, but to resurrect our flesh and blood to a glorified flesh and blood one day. That's awesome. So here's John the Baptist paving the way. He's using a lot of bold language to kind of lay everything to waste, which is kind of like what the law does. The law lays waste to the self-righteous so that they have nothing in themselves to cling on to as the reason for why they should be saved or forgiven or reconciled with God. So John the Baptist is making the way straight for Jesus. And this is why this verse is used during this season of Advent. Because as we are expecting and anticipating the coming of Christ at his birth, we can also see this passage as a reminder of great anticipation for Christ's return when he makes all things new. And this promise in this passage, I want to go back to here earlier, was a promise that was given in the book of Isaiah centuries before this happened. Where Isaiah says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's a promise. That's an awesome promise. Because it is a promise that was given to Eve in the garden that her seed would crush the serpent's head. It was the promise that was given to Abraham that the entire world would be blessed through his seed. It was the promise that was given to all who came after Abraham. It was a promise that was given to David. It was the promise that was given to God's chosen people. Oh, and why were they God's chosen people? Because through them would come Christ who then dies on a cross for his people and then extends this gift of salvation to the whole world. And the children of Abraham are not according to simply flesh and blood standards, but through those who, like Abraham, believed God and God credits this belief to those who believe as righteousness. So John the Baptist is right here when he says that God can raise children of Abraham from these stones. And God does. And so just like the genie running through the streets, paving the way for Prince Ali, John the Baptist here is paving the way and clearing the streets and making the way straight for Christ to come the forerunner, the promised forerunner in scripture that Elijah will come. This is another thing that's fascinating too as I kind of wrap this up. When Elijah, Elijah was considered the first major prophet in the Old Testament who comes and who delivers the word of the Lord to the people. 
and all of these string of prophets after him, and all these prophets are promising that a promised Messiah would come. And then after one of these last prophets, over 400 years of silence from God. Over 400 years of silence. And then here comes this voice crying from the wilderness, just like Elijah. Make way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That is awesome. God keeps his promises. All we are given sometimes is a promise. And that's fine. Because God shows throughout Scripture time and time again that He keeps His promises. So if you are sitting here in this season of Advent, I hope you are in, are waiting in anticipation for the coming of Christ. Tis the season. Christmas will be here soon. And know that each day that passes, we are one day closer to the promised return of Christ. In the same way that all of those characters and heroes of the faith in the Old Testament waited in anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah came and he died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. And he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. And that same promised one, Jesus, has promised to one day return to make all things new. And in one swift word from him, all of the sad things will come untrue. And that is a wonderful promise that belongs to you. Into the one, he does not work, but believe in him, he justifies in God man. His faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 5.